I'm Eric Ebel, Communications Manager with the Washington Department of Ecology's Hazardous Waste and Toxics Reduction Program, and I'm speaking with longtime attorney for the Haz Waste Program, Mr. Nels Johnson of the Office of the Attorney General. Nels, thanks for joining me today. You bet. It's a pleasure. You recently announced your retirement after how many years in state service? Uh, 20 plus. will be 21 pretty soon. And what prompted you to make the big decision? A confluence of things. One of the major ones, though, is, is kind of personal. It's, you know, my wife has been retired. She's a midwife. She's been retired for a couple of years, and she's kind of been lobbying me to um, get in sync with her so we can kind of enjoy the next years together and, and not be kind of going in different directions. Uh, you know, that's been a major pull. It's not that I don't want to keep doing the work, but um, I've been persuaded that uh, it'd be a great idea to retire a little on the early side, not too early, and be, we hope, relatively healthy and active in our retirement. Do you have any big plans, tour the world or anything like that? Well, we did have something like that, um, but the tour is, is on hold for now. So, you know, the next best thing is I need to uh, completely paint my house inside and out and do some repairs that I've been putting off. So that's what I'm going to be doing in lieu of the big tour. It will come, I hope, when things get more back to normal. Very good. Let's talk a little about your career. You were the lead attorney general counsel for the Hazwaste program for approximately 15 years. What was it about the work with this program that made you want to stay on that long as the lead attorney? Well, you know, time flies when you're having fun. The time has gone by really quickly, you know, now that I'm looking back on it. And what made me never really want to move on to anything else, and, you know, there were at times various opportunities um, is first and foremost, you know, kind of the importance of the mission as I saw it of the program. You know, it was possible to be involved in things that were right on the cutting edge of, you know, environmental protection. There was stuff going on that, you know, that needed to stop and the agency needed legal representation in its actions to, you know, get things under control, stop contamination, get things disposed of that were being illegally stored, threatening water and air and the people of Washington. So that was rewarding. I never got tired of that. There's also a complexity to the work that the program does that was at times uh, vexing and intimidating, but ultimately always exhilarating. And then there's the people. I couldn't pick a better group of people to work with, and that goes from the support staff up to the various program managers I've worked with and and all the managers in between, just dedicated people who take their work seriously and value the legal input that they get. So, you know, there weren't many days where I could say, well, that was a bummer day. I wish I was doing something else. It was pretty much always the opposite even when things were somewhat quiet. And then sometimes things were pretty exciting. Tell us about some of those exciting moments, some of the more memorable but maybe not necessarily rewarding experiences in your time as lead attorney. Sometimes, yeah, the excitement could come simply, you know, getting a phone call uh, from somebody saying, well, you know, we've discovered a huge mess and we're mobilizing to deal with it, and we need some some legal backup. Uh, You know, one of those was Double H Farms situation over by Yakima, where people had been digging pits and and throwing their toxic waste into the pit as, as an alternative to any kind of rational or legal disposal. And, you know, that 
that turned into an enforcement action. It was ultimately settled, but it was pretty complicated and dealing with very defensive and upset perpetrators and their attorneys uh, was was challenging. There were there were moments when I saw people, you know, not necessarily at their best, but in the in the end, we you know the agency you know, prevailed, got a large part of the penalty upheld. Um, that was a long drawn out case and uh, took a lot of work. Nels, I have to say that sounds like something that a villain in a 1980s environmental movie would be doing, not something that someone yeah. would actually do in real life. I, I think, unfortunately, it's probably a fairly common practice in certain areas. It just doesn't get uncovered very much. What were some of the more challenging aspects representing the Has Waste program? Sometimes I felt like I had to be, be sure that I was bringing my best to the program because I always felt like the folks I was working for were going the extra mile and I felt challenged to kind of rise to that level and make sure that when legal input or representation was needed, I was really bringing what I had to offer, the best I had to offer in terms of my analysis, my advice, and, uh, you know, in terms of actual representation in negotiations or in front of the pollution control hearings board. You know, there were, there were times when I would get done with something and think, did I do all I could have done there? And, you know, and ultimately I think either I did or I got a chance to make it up later if I felt like I'd missed something. But that was challenging. Another thing was feeling like I didn't always understand what the program staff were dealing with. I'm not out there with them all the time. And I, I'd say if I had any regrets, one regret I have is that I didn't get it into the field with people more. But yeah, seeing things from the perspective of, of, of the inspector staff and others, that was a challenge. And then there were cases too where I knew the agency was doing the right thing, but you know I had to try to see things from the point of view of the, of the businesses who were being regulated. And sometimes there was genuine you know, raw feelings and from people who felt like they were, you know, they're trying to make a business go, they're trying to pay their employees and do the right thing, and they just slipped up on something and, and they, they couldn't get a break. And I, I felt like I, I, I certainly understood the need to be consistent in regulation and enforcement. Uh, you can't just sort of arbitrarily give somebody a break because they have a good story or they seem like nice folks. But sometimes it was challenging, you know, to kind of watch that play out and see people, you know, feel, you know, like they'd been abused, even though, you know, I didn't really think they had been, but that was their personal sense. Speaking of regulations, what was the most challenging aspect of working with the dangerous waste regulations? Sometimes it was difficult to see how they actually worked in the real world. You know, you got, you got this manual full of words. And uh, it clearly was drafted by people who were drawing on various sources and trying to make a set of regulations that are protective and applicable and defensible. And sometimes, as a you know, as a reader, it's not always clear. And I, I find that especially so with the hazardous waste regs, they're complicated and they're and they're addressed to often complicated situations. And that was that was often a challenge. There were actually times where I would sort of. I would get a question or be in the middle of a situation where a certain set of the regs would be applicable and I would look them up and realize I'd been there before. I had notes in the margins. I had things highlighted. It, it had faded because I hadn't worked with it for a while and, and yet here it was again and, and I couldn't really remember. I had to kind of rebuild it because of the complexity of the regs. You know, I would look at a reg and not really know how it would play out in reality. So I would call the inspectors and, and their managers and say, you know, 
how do you see this reg? How do you apply it? How has it played out in the past? Because that's going to help me advise you on how you know we should apply it in the, in the present. Is the complexity of the dangerous waste regulation something that you would change? Or if not, is there something else that you would change in the dangerous waste regulations? I would certainly continue to try to. I have worked with um, policy staff and others to, to address some of the regulatory issues that have arisen from the language in the past. There's a, you know, a couple that come to mind. One is there is nowhere in the regs where there is a definitive clear statement that an operator requires a hazardous waste facility permit in order to operate a facility. It breaks kind of talk around it, and it's clearly implied. And I only had a few cases where people argued that they didn't need a permit, and it was usually somebody who was storing, you know, a generator who stored their waste too long and became a storage facility in that way. When we were dealing with these folks and when there was an enforcement to be brought, I wanted to be able to cite a section of the regs that simply says you need a permit to do that operate a facility and it's not there <laughs> so i would <laughs> cobble together a bunch of sections that implied it and uh you know we were always upheld on that but that was frustrating that we don't just have that in the reg to be fair to to policy staff and others we've looked at that and they've had reasons why the language i thought was appropriate we would not work in various ways and so we're still grappling with that Nels, over the last several years, you were heavily involved in litigation regarding Stericycle. Do you have any memorable moments from those cases? Well, yeah, that was uh, that was an exciting case because it started with exciting facts. Um, there was a fire at the facility, and then there was just a slew of other violations, and it was clear that the place was kind of reeling out of control. The lead inspector on the case did a, an excellent job cataloging the violations and in the end, the agency issued a fairly sizable penalty. I forget what was actually issued, but it was close to $2 million because it was just an outrageous situation, and it was clear this place was a danger to the people working there and to the broader community. So we vetted the, the enforcement action. It was issued, and then we began to prepare for a hearing and also to negotiate uh, a settlement because the facility seemed very mo- motivated to go to a settlement rather than have their, their laundry aired in public at a hearing. And um, the settlement went very well, uh, partly because we were in such a good position and we got we got a good deal. We got more than the penalty that was originally issued because the facility wanted a sort of a safety going forward. And when they asked for that and offered to pay the whole penalty, we, uh, we were a little taken aback because you don't often get a facility offering to pay the whole penalty. They always want a break. But then it seemed like the obvious response was, well, if you want more, then you need to pay more. So they settled for over $2 million, which is the biggest penalty uh, settlement in, in my career. And how do you feel personally when you successfully get one of these offenders to uh, pay the penalty that they were assessed, and yet they get to admit to no wrongdoing. That's something that I kind of accept. It's just a sort of legal fact of life. I don't know who hit on that first, but somewhere back in the midst of time, you know, some violator offered to settle and said, as part of this deal, we want to be able to say that we don't admit any wrongdoing. Some attorney somewhere thought of that one and thought, that's good because going forward, you know, you'll have some sort of a clean record. You can argue you didn't do it, but you just settled out of convenience. 
and it became very standard to ask for that and very hard to argue against. It is often considered a make or break, you know, with appellants when they settle. You know, in my mind, people know more likely than not they did commit the, the violations, and that's just something they've bargained for. That statement. I know that it sticks in the craw of the inspector staff and managers and others who know they've got these guys dead to rights. They know at the same time that it's it's wise to settle to save resources, put resources into other enforcements, and avoid the uncertainty of litigation, which can just you know reel out of control. You never know you know what case is going to just go quickly at the board and what might wind up at the state supreme court. So it doesn't bother me that much, but I do find myself having to explain it a lot, including to me just now. <laughs> <laughs> so really, the last question I have for you, Nels, is. On the first day that you wake up and you don't have to report to work, what are you going to do? Go back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, after I go back to sleep for a little while, um, it's going to feel a little unreal, I'm sure, but um, I will probably take my dog for a hike and um, cook something tasty and... Uh, you know, look around the house and see which project I should I should start first. Well, it sounds like the future is bright for you, Nels. We appreciate all of your state service, and thank you again so much for speaking with me today. You bet. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>